This is Momming While Feminist. We're here to have authentic, open-minded, hopeful, and maybe even helpful conversation about being a mom in a world where gender inequality and misogyny are everywhere. We want our parenting decisions to reflect our values as feminists, but that's not easy, so we need to talk about it. Welcome. Welcome. I'm Lisa. And I'm Lindsay. I have two sons, ages five and seven, and a daughter, age two. And I have two daughters, ages three and six. Today, we are planning to talk about feminist momming during an election season. But before we do that, we want to take a moment to call attention to the movement for Black Lives and Liberation. For today's moment to acknowledge the ongoing fight to stop brutality against Black lives, um, we just want to honor all the advocates and activists that are still pushing for justice for Breonna Taylor. Um, We know that the grand jury trial was by the time this comes out a few weeks ago, but there are still people on the ground working for justice and we just want to honor them and um, lift up her name and her family at this time. And now we're going to move into talking about our topic of the day. We're days away from the election, so that's our focus for the next two episodes. And we want to talk about ways we can engage ourselves. And then we're actually going to do another episode to talk about ways to involve our children. And so this week, we have our guest, Francoise Stovall. Hi, Francoise. Hello, everyone. Welcome. And Francoise is also here with her little six-week-old baby, Leon. Yeah, he's sleeping in the carrier on my chest. Okay, so a little bit about Francoise. She's dedicated her career to working for inclusive and accountable democracy, both at home and around the world. As digital director at Voto Latino, she oversees web and SMS strategies and manages digital projects designed to increase participation and civic engagement in Latinx communities and hold power accountable. Before joining Voto Latino, Francoise worked as the digital director of the organization Every Voice to reform money in politics and at the National Democratic Institute to encourage civic groups around the world to use digital tools and tactics to strengthen democracy in their communities. She began her career as a campaign field organizer, working on campaigns in Iowa, Pennsylvania, and Florida, and she is a graduate of the George Washington University. So thank you. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you. Yes. So we just will ask you one get-to-know-you question to start, which is, do you identify as a feminist and why or why not? I do identify as a feminist. I have for a long time. I took women's studies in college, and that was probably my feminist awakening. And why do I identify as a feminist? I think everyone should should be able to live full, unencumbered lives. And I think feminism has been the like analytical framework that's allowed me to see where the systems stop people from being people, right? Where those, where those walls and barriers are. So it's been a really useful way of seeing systems and society and culture and interactions to to help me analyze those to live a freer and better life. That's awesome. Cool. Thank you. And with that, we would like to know who is your feminist crush right now. So the feminist crush can be anything, person, place, things, piece, news quote that you just love for its pro-feminist vibe. I'll go first, and then we'll go to Francoise, and we'll go to Lisa. So my feminist crush this week, so for listeners, we're recording this right after president has announced the nominee for the Supreme Court, 
And someone posted this quote by Bell Hooks, and I want to share this quote as my my feminist crush this week. So by Bell Hooks and Feminism is for Everybody, quote, lifestyle feminism ushered in the notion that there could be as many versions of feminism as there were women. Suddenly, the politics was being slowly removed from feminism, and the assumption prevailed that no matter what a woman's politics, be she conservative or liberal, she too could fit feminism into her existing lifestyle. Obviously, this way of thinking has made feminism more acceptable because of its underlying assumption is that women can be feminists without fundamentally challenging and changing themselves or the culture, end quote. And that really speaks to me right now with all this conversation. And so my feminist crush is that quote and also all of the different women out there who are speaking out and saying, no, like, is, she's not a feminist. She can't be a feminist when she's shutting the doors for all these other women. So that's my feminist crush for this week. Francoise, what about you? I have sort of a preemptive feminist crush. So one of my favorite authors, yeah, Jesse, has come out with a new book. I haven't read it yet because I've been <laughs> I'm not reading very much lately, but I did buy it because I'm super stoked. She, um, Her first novel, Homegoing, is one of my favorite books I've ever read. It's an incredible novel, and I'm super excited to read whenever I can read again. I'm very excited to read her new novel. It's called Transcendent Kingdom. Wow, cool. What's her name again? Yeah, Jessie. She's a Ghanaian-American author. Her first book was this just sweeping epic of 200 years of Ghanaian and American history, just really moving. Apparently, this book is a little bit more present day, a little bit smaller in scope, but I anticipate it will be marvelous. Wonderful. Adding that to my list, we'll put a link of that in our show notes as well. There is nothing better than looking forward to the book, like the next book of your favorite author when you know it's coming. Yeah, yeah. My feminist crush this week is the June menstrual cup. And actually, I was thinking back to our college days. So Francoise and I went to college together. And I think that was where I read the book Cunt. Mm -hmm. And she had a whole chapter on menstruation. Mm -hmm. And I learned about other options besides like the typical tampons and pads. Anyway, so then I'm like obsessed with periods. I think they're beautiful. I like think they're this magical special thing. Obviously, my period gave me you know, my three gorgeous children. But even in college, I was obsessed. I wanted to take like photographs of the blood. I like, I thought it was terrible that like women would have shame around their period or think it was ugly or whatever. So anyway, I love the June cup because I'm like up there with my blood. (laughs) And like, I think I only had to pay for shipping. I've never used a menstrual cup before these last months, like Instagram totally appropriately targeted me with their ads to buy one. Anyway, more options for women. I'm all about it. Less money, less impact on the environment. I still have my, you know, reusable cloth pads that I love the most, but menstrual cup. Woo! Awesome. Okay. So there are a lot of people feeling a lot of anxiety about the upcoming U.S. election, especially if you're worrying about equal rights for women. But there's this additional conversation that I'm not sure we've had in the same way about threats to democracy depending on if you even think we have a democracy, have had a democracy, but we can get into that. We, so we asked Francoise here. To get started, Francoise, just tell us about yourself. Like, how'd you get into your line of work? Why is it important to you? Tell us more about you and your story. Sure. So my origin story was in the eighth grade (laughs) in social studies class. Shout out to the teachers. This is also a love letter to teachers, but our social studies teacher was telling us about a trip she had taken to to West Berlin when the wall was still up. And she was telling us this story of 
touring the wall and seeing at the foot of the wall there were markers where people had come across and been killed. And she told us those people were risking their lives to be able to vote. And that stuck with me, clearly. <laughs> I'm talking about it, you know, 30 years later, not quite, but, you know, many decades later. It really moved me that a vote is so powerful that it is worth risking your life and dying for. I don't want those people, and, you know, our, this country also, of course, has its long history of people who have risked their life and died to be able to vote. And I don't want to do disservice to their memories by walking away from our democracy. Our democracy is worth fighting for the way that they sacrificed and fought for. So that is that set me on the path of loving politics and loving democracy. And as you said in, in the intro, I've also done some work internationally. I worked for the National Democratic Institute for five years and did some consulting with them and got to witness the first free and fair elections in Tunisia after their dictator fell. And again, just that energy and that joy of people being able to vote unencumbered for the first time is so moving. It's really hard to to not vote <laughs> when you've seen that, right? It's really hard mm. to not to not be moved and not be excited and not invest in the process when you've seen how hard people have worked to get there. So can I ask a follow-up question? Like, what is the day-to-day like as the digital director of Voto Latino? Yeah, very hectic. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually on leave right now. It's like it's such a weird time to be on maternity leave. So Voto Latino, the mission for 2020 is to register 500,000 new Latinx voters. And the way that we do our work is primarily online, because when you're talking about Latinx folks under 35, the best place to find them is online. That's where they spend a lot of their time. And so the, the day-to-day really, until I left, was about building this big machine that is now being deployed in my absence, the content to reach them with, the um, process, you know, the, the platform they're going to register on, how we then keep them engaged once they've registered, right? It's not enough to just register, then we want you to vote. We want you to know how to vote. And this year, especially, there's a lot of dis and misinformation about voting. So making sure that those education campaigns are in place. Yeah, and, and getting people to the polls. So the day-to-day was like, you know, setting up the ad campaigns, crunching the numbers, seeing what worked, pulling down the ones that didn't work, trying the ones that did, allocating the money in the states we wanted to work in. You know, it's a lot of sort of unglamorous behind the scenes work. But the numbers were really coming in. By the time I left, we were halfway to our goal. We were at 250,000, which is right where we wanted to be because the, wow. the energy and the enthusiasm is going to, is you know, is, is at its peak right now. So mm. um, those final 250,000, I think my team's going to do it. Uh, you know, I, I think that goal is very doable and very exciting. That's wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. It's yeah, so congrats. bizarre to like do all of that work and then just be like, all right, I'm going to go. Yeah. Is it hard to not like to not check in? Yeah, I, I peek at um, our registration numbers on the back end. Don't yeah. Tell my boss. I don't, <laughs> I don't want them to come to me, but um, I do peek at the numbers to see the process. Yeah, I bet it's hard. to. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So in your bio, you talked about working for inclusive and accountable democracy. And so I was wondering if you would just talk a little bit about what that is and what you see are the barriers to that in the U.S.? Yeah. So you sort of hinted at this, Lisa, a little bit earlier. You said, you know, if we even have a democracy, (laughs) which, wow, what a good question. Do we actually have one? So we, I would say the U.S. has been sort of striving towards democracy through its history. But the the truth is it has been a, a government system of minority rule from the jump, right? It was always about 
every citizen has never actually been able to have their voice heard and listened to and respected in this place we're calling a democracy. So those two adjectives, I think, are important. Those are the missing pieces to get to a real democracy. So inclusive means everyone can participate and also everyone can, so not just that they can vote, but that they are they can attend their community meeting and be heard, or they can run for office and have a real shot of winning. So that is, you know, the inclusive part is that everyone actually can be a part of this thing. Democracy has to have everyone involved for it to work correctly. And then accountable is that if your elected leaders aren't listening to you and there's no mechanism for telling them how you want them to act on your behalf, then, then what are we doing? <laughs> and that's not a democracy either. So the accountability part is what happens post-election, which we can also talk about, but that democracy is an ongoing process. It's not just about election day. You vote and then you're done. That there is an accountability process that is constantly happening, a dialogue that is constantly happening between you and your elected representative. So, you know, I, I think um, running for office is not something everyone wants to do or can do, but your elected official should be in constant dialogue with you so that they are accountable to the policies and progress that you want them to make. I was just thinking that if you're just like a, I want to say like a regular old citizen like me, you kind of think accountability starts and stops at the ballot box. That is part of it. It's not that accountability has nothing to do with voting. Voting is a major accountability mechanism. If your representative doesn't vote the way you want them to, your responsibility is to vote against them, right, is to vote them out. But that, A, that means your vote has to count. It means you have to be able to vote. It means that vote has to not be drowned out by gerrymandering. And then it also means that there's like an ongoing process where you're telling them what it, right, they don't know how to vote on your behalf if you're not engaging in that process along the way. So to someone who would say like, we do have inclusive, everyone's allowed to vote now in America. Mm. No, not true. I know, but <laughs> what, what would you say? Vote. Yeah, I would say, again, that the history of this country has been about allowing more and more people to vote. We're not done with that work yet. And in fact, in many ways, we're moving backwards. So things like voter ID laws, which are designed to keep specific people, certain people from voting, usually they're black and brown people, usually they're poor people, because assuming that someone has a birth certificate or that they can afford to pay the fees for an ID is a poll tax. We are disenfranchising former felons in a lot of places. This is a big deal in Florida right now, but I believe there are two other states that don't allow people to vote after they've fulfilled their convictions. And then there's also like all these different rules about like, you can't vote if you're on parole, all but two states, you can't vote if you're incarcerated. So right, there's this whole like carceral state part where we're taking you out of society and then we're also removing your voice. There are, the system is designed to have overcrowded polling places in black and brown areas. So you may have the right to vote in those places, but you show up at your polling place on election day and there's a six hour line and you have to go to work or you have to pick up your child. You actually don't have a right to vote, right? We've actually made a structure where you can't access the ballot box. So there are all of these ways, big and small, that the vote is not inclusive, that we are excluding people and we're doing it purposefully. Like I think it bears saying that the system actually is working the way it was set up to work. It's not by accident that black and brown neighborhoods have fewer polling locations. That is purposeful. But that also means we can fix it, right? We can actually, since it is man-made, we can undo that harm. And that's some of the work that we're doing as well. The accountability piece is really important 
to me, but it's also one of the hardest things to do because it takes so much time. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could give an example of like, what's one way other than voting? Like what's one way, like how can people uh, take action to hold their, you know, elected officials accountable? I mean, we're seeing it, right? We're seeing, I, I don't, let's, let's think a little bit more local than president, right? It's hard to like hold the president accountable other than voting, but because it's just such a large, massive scale, but like, you can hold your district attorney accountable by protesting in the streets. We're seeing that every day now, right? You can go to a council meeting. We have an affordable housing development that is potentially coming into our neighborhood. And the best way to show support for that is to send an email to my council person and then to go to that council meeting and go in favor of it. So, you know, it can be in the street, it can be voting, it can be protesting is a huge one, it can be calling your um, member of Congress, there was a huge swell in early 2017 that, you know, Indivisible put out this guide and was like, flood the phone lines, and it worked, right, we saved the ACA. And then I think the energy has sort of dwindled, I'm not sure people are calling their member of Congress every day anymore. But that's a five minute call you can make, you know, when you have five minutes of downtime, you can call your member of Congress or your local official, your state senator, get to know your state representatives. They're actually doing a ton of work that is impacting your life every day and a lot fewer people are contacting them. So that's a that's actually a very impactful place to send your phone calls because they're not hearing from as many people. Yeah, I think like the at the local level, so I'm pretty involved in local elections here and local politics here in DC. And I agree, like for me, when especially, I think it started actually more after I had children and I started getting involved in like education issues locally, but also becoming just feeling like the disenfranchisement as a DC mm-hmm. citizens. And so we don't have senators and I get so frustrated every time there's a big issue, I get all these text messages, like call your Senator. And I respond, I'm like, I don't have a Senator. <laughs> like, yeah. At least they could suppress DC from those sense. Yeah. But it was like, okay, well the only area where I can really try and affect change is locally with my DC council and the other elected officials here. And so I'm involved in all these different groups, but still it just takes so much time. And I'm just thinking I have organizations, one organization I'm involved with asking me if I want to testify, send a testimony in to the DC council on Friday about distance learning and how distance learning is going. And the meeting is at between nine and 12 in the morning, which is like right when most of the distance learning classes are. (laughs) And, and I just like, you know, and they're like, we can help you with the testimony and all this. And I'm like, I just don't have time that and that doesn't even involve like going there. So it's just this. So there still are so many, it really does take work and time. And I think it's so important. And it's been something that's really important to me too. You're right. It does take work and it does take time. And well, first you don't have to do every single thing Yeah, right? you have to do all those things I just said. And if you don't call every day, that's fine. You can call once a week. And if you can't do the testimony that time, then, you know, let someone else um, step up and do it instead. But yeah, I mean, it, it does take work and the work is really worth it because, yeah. you know, I, well, I've been momming for six weeks. Like, I don't know what I'm doing at all, but, but I do, I do believe that parenting is also creating the world that you want your children to live Mm -hmm. in. And that work is not, it's worth prioritizing, right? Finding that balance, fitting it in, in some way, you know, letting yourself off the hook that you can't do everything, but not ignoring it completely. Because I do think if you want your children to, I don't think it's fair to tell your children that their voice matters and then set them free into a country where it doesn't. Right. right? We need to, we need to really make sure that 
those ideals are lived up to. And what's interesting is once you start to get like on the looking at what I'm talking about is there's so many demands and ways to get involved. Like that's actually a good thing. Like there's really Mm -hmm. many ways you don't, like you said, you don't have to do everything, but there's Mm -hmm. a lot of different ways to get involved in that accountability process on an ongoing basis, not just every four years doing your, when, during election season or every two years during election season. So. Yeah. I think that's the big takeaway is like, just, yes, you should vote, but you should also commit to doing one other thing right? It doesn't have to be 17 other things. But what is that thing that you will commit to doing after election day that you can sustain and keep doing? And there are groups, like you said, there's tons of groups that you can join that will sort of help guide you. Where is your time most valuable at this moment? But if all you do is show up and vote, then exactly, you're losing that accountability piece and your Mm. representatives are sort of free to go off and do whatever they want because they know you aren't paying attention. Yeah. Thank you for that. So what gives you hope right now? I know it's Hold on, can I just say one thing? Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. This has been fantastic. I just want to mention, even hearing you guys both talk about it is like, I have felt a little bit like it's so hopeless that I've just been, like what you said, Francoise, about working to give your kids, you know, a better place, the place you're telling them where they can one day have a voice or the place you would like for them to have. I've been kind of like, yeah, right now it's too messed up. Like, I'm just going to worry about raising good kids so that when they grow up, they can make that place. And I guess I'm just putting that out there because I feel like it's important to reflect on. There is so much keeping us all so busy. And up until now, the argument of like making the place a better one for your kids hasn't really resonated with me in the same way because it's felt like so just pointless like especially right now with where things are going yeah I hear that and we can talk about reasons to be hopeful in a minute but you are doing that work right like you the work that you will have a petition to defund the police and who does that go to I assume it goes to some elected official somewhere with a policy demand that is doing the democracy work right so It's a tough time to be in this country right now. There's no question. There's a pandemic. You have kids at home. You're trying to educate them. You're trying to keep them sane and yourself sane. But yeah, I think, again, I I think you actually are doing more of the democracy work than you think you're doing. And I think it is something that is worth fighting for and prioritizing. If I may tell a quick story about Baklav Havel, Lisa. Oh my God. We can't do a democracy podcast with Lisa Ramish and not talk about Vaclav Havel. So for folks who don't know, Vaclav Havel was a playwright and a dissident in Czechoslovakia during the communist rule. And he was then elected once the communists fell, he was elected to be the first president of the country, very committed to democracy. And when the 2016 election happened, I got very despondent and depressed as I think many people did. And I thought, who has who, I, this isn't the first time we've done this. Like someone else has lived through this before. And so I picked, I got a book of his speeches. And one of his speeches, he talked about that a lot of the parents during communism just sort of put their head down and went along with the regime because they wanted their kids to be able to attend school or they didn't want to be jailed. And they didn't, you know, they wanted to be home with their kids instead of in jail, right? All very reasonable things that people would want. And when communism did fall, their kids looked at them and said, why did you leave this up to us? Why did we have to do that work? Why did you go along with the regime for so long? 
And I think about that all the time. I thought about that way, you know, I've been a parent for six weeks, but I've been thinking about that since 2016, that doing the easy thing to go along and get along just passes the buck. It does not, and things, you know, in the meantime, get worse. So yeah, I don't blame you for feeling hopeless. It's really hard right now to do the work every day, but again, it's, it's worth it. It's worth fighting for. This thing we have is special. It's never really worked correctly and we have an opportunity to push it forward. And I am not ready to give up on it. And I don't think that we should give up on it for our children, right? That the alternative is much, much worse and we need to keep moving forward. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Francoise. So then what would you recommend? Because I think the other side of this is it's like, so then when you're gearing up to do something, I think it can be kind of paralyzing because you say, well, whatever I do, I want it to be the most impactful. And so that's another, it's, it's for me in some ways, it's a little bit of a barrier because I'm like, is what I'm doing even making a difference, you know? So what, what is it that we vote? We, mm-hmm. you know, make sure our friends vote. We make sure we have a plan to vote. What else do you think? So there are lots and lots of organizations that are doing that triage work for you. So join your local swing left chapter, join your local indivisible chapter, join the email uh, list of move on, right? Like, well, and you don't have to do all these things, right? Pick one. Color of Change is doing incredible organizing work all over the place. They have a democracy department, public citizen, common cause, right? There's, there's many groups that are working on democracy issues and you can give them $10 a month and that can be your contribution, your volunteer and monetary contribution for the month, right? That can, you can feel good and leave the rest of the work to other people at that point. You can just plug into the groups that are doing this organizing work. And then you can, yeah, if you join, you can join a group that is doing this triage work for you. You can contribute, you know, commit to contributing $10 and one hour a month, and then, you know, let yourself off the hook that you are, that you've, you've done what you can do for that month. Right. But, but to walk away entire, right. When, when thousands of people do that work together, then you, then you're getting somewhere. And if all of us individually drop out, then we get nowhere. I want to do one more plug for working families party. That's yes. They're great. Absolutely. They're great. Yeah. I did not think money counted. I'm going to be honest. What? So yeah. Right. I was not including money in this. Yeah. Donations absolutely count. So money matters because if you don't have time to go out and organize your community, move on is putting organizers in your community and those people need to be paid. So you can subsidize, right? You can pay that, you can subsidize right. that person's salary and they're going to devote 40 hours a week to doing that work in a way that you may not be able to. So it does matter. And it also just matters to flex that muscle, right? It gives, it shows, it shows the strength of an organization when they can say we have hundred thousand small dollar donors. And it also gives them a cushion. A lot of these organizations do depend on the generosity of wealthy individuals. And so if one of those people pulls out, it can be catastrophic for an organization and their work, unless they have a hundred thousand people giving $10 a month, and then they can sort of ride that wave and keep the work up at the level they need it until they, you know, find someone who can help continue um, funding the organization. And again, like if you're looking for a, a short way of getting involved, I think it's absolutely a valid way. If you can spare $5, $10, then throw it to a to an organization that has a strong democracy program. And I just want to add a couple of things to that. So it, like you were saying about the, a lot of these organizations are funded by big, you know, foundations or, or big donors. Usually because of that, they also 
are accountable to them to what they want and if they have small dollar donors then these organizations can do more of the the real work that they as the experts know that it's important without being at the having to abide by these strings that are attached to these big donors the other thing is that we're in a because and like our giving culture our charity culture in the u.s because we get tax exempts those people who have money to give or to donate like within the formal system get tax exemptions or whatever for giving to 501c3s so a lot of times people choose to donate to like charities 501c3s but not to these political organizations because you can't get the tax deduction but these are the ones that are really fighting for some of that change so i just encourage people to also think beyond the uh the like 501c3 donation and, and these mm-hmm. political donations are really important to changing the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and usually people who are giving five or $10, you don't really care about the tax deduction, right? Yeah, that's so, true. Um, throwing that money to, like you said, to a non-tax exempt organization, either a campaign or a 501c4, which are allowed to do sort of harder political work is a great way. Like that $10 does matter. I've done small dollar fundraising. I promise yeah. you, we are happy every time a donation comes in. It means more Freedom, like you said, Lindsay, that's such a good point, right? It means freedom from big donors and their transitory whims. And it also means, you know, longevity and flexibility for the organization. So hope. Yeah. So tell us about hope. Where do you get your hope? Okay, so these are unquestionably dark times, right? But the thing that does make me hopeful is someone, as someone who has spent 10 years thinking about the rules of the game and the structure of the system. And mostly people don't care, haven't cared, right? They're like, oh, money and politics, uh, an intractable problem, we can never solve it. Or, you know, democracy and Tunisia, forget, you know, they're screwed, don't even waste your time, don't worry about it. So I've been, I've been spending all this time sort of toiling (laughs) without anyone really believing that change was possible. And what is very exciting right now is that everyone is talking about the structure of democracy. That's like top of everyone's list is killing the filibuster, giving statehood to DC and Puerto Rico, ending gerrymandering, reforming money, right? HR1, the um, house bill that supposedly is gonna be the first thing that the new Congress passes. I mean, it was the first thing they passed last time, but we had a Republican Senate, so it didn't go anywhere. But in theory, if we have a Democratic Senate, the first bill they're going to pass is a democracy reform bill that has money and politics reform and a renewed voting rights act, right? All of a sudden, same thing, when John Lewis died, all of a sudden people were like, oh, the best way to commemorate him is to reinstate the voting rights act, which is absolutely correct. But like, no one, you know, we lost the voting rights act, I think six years ago, and no one has, you know, really been agitating to um, shore it up in those six years until John Lewis died. So people are suddenly paying attention to the rules of the game and the structure of the system in a way that if we follow through could have lasting decades long impact. So that actually does make me hopeful because we're finally focused on the right thing in a way that if we get serious about reforming those things that we can, it won't just be like, let's grin and bear it until the next election in two years. This is actually the way that you reset the game so that so that it's fair going forward. And we actually don't have to like white knuckle it every four years. We will have a more inclusive and accountable democracy consistently going forward. Yeah, you know, something that you ha- we haven't kind of mentioned that I was thinking about as you were talking earlier is like something we haven't talked about or kind of said explicitly is like right now, 
Well, let me, I guess, let me ask, like, right now, do you feel like the majority of people aren't, don't have representation? Yeah. I mean, numerically, the majority of people don't have representation. So the way the electoral college is set up, the president is elected, the current president is elected with a minority of voters. The way the Senate is set up, the Senate way overrepresents small states. So those people are way overrepresented. States like California and New York and Texas don't have the same say, right? So that we are a country of minority rule. That's part of what's so terrifying about the Supreme Court right now is that it's going to lock in minority rule for for a long time because they stole Merrick Garland's seat and then they're going to create this majority. So, so yeah, we, I mean, we, this is a country minority rule. Um, it has gotten worse in the last, really since Mitch McConnell has been in charge, it has moved backwards. But again, like we're, that's the pessimistic part. And, and like, don't get me wrong, we're in for some dark days. Like it, these things won't change overnight. Even if Joe Biden wins, it's going to take a lot, a lot of work to start moving in the right direction again. But at least we're focused on the right thing. Like it seems to me that suddenly people were like, why have our rights come down to one 87 year old white woman on the Supreme Court? Like maybe we should rethink um, our system of power so that we aren't ever in this position ever again. And so those are the kind of conversations I'm interested in. Those are the kind of policy fights that are worth fighting is the ones that really create structural change in a way that resets and allows that inclusive, accountable part of the system to flourish. Does that give you any hope? Yeah. (laughs) I'm fired up. Dark days. (laughs) I'm fired up. (laughs) It's dark days. But yes, I mean, if we can, right, like if part of what is driving me crazy is this framing of that like giving DC statehood would or abolishing the filibusters like that is Democrats going to war against Republicans. And it's like, no, no, no. It's just basic fairness, mm-hmm. <laughs> just basic majority rule. These are reforms that should have happened years and years ago. And at least we're getting serious about implementing them now. Yeah. So, but like, why isn't just everyone in DC just like shutting it? the fuck down why isn't every single dc citizen out being like this is crazy you're about to appoint a conservative supreme court justice and we don't have a vote like how is it that how many people are in washington dc Seven hundred thousand. Seven hundred thousand people wyoming yeah have decided that they don't don't need representation in congress yeah the problem again is the problem is that we need everyone in Virginia and Vermont and Iowa to be out in the streets demanding DC right. because we that it's a catch-22 because the whole thing is we don't have a you get it by a by a majority in Congress and we don't have anyone right. in Congress. so but I think there is momentum building I was in back when we could be in elevators with people I was in an elevator with someone who um, <laughs> was uh she had a, a button on and it said Iowans for DC statehood. And I was like, I love your button. And she was like, yeah, I'm the president of my Iowa for sta- DC statehood. That's, awesome. like, that's who we need agitating for us as people who actually can lean on their representatives. to. Create. She's my feminist crush. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, there you go. But like we had a democratic Congress mm-hmm. and it didn't happen then. Right. That's what I'm saying. So, structure and systems have been off of the radar. It's been like gaining a a political advantage for like four years at a time is what people have been thinking of. And I think things are so catastrophic now 
that people are finally like, how can we actually just course correct in a meaningful and long-term way? So, so I think Got everyone it. would agree that electing Joe Biden is not going to solve our problem, our long-term problem, right? It's the first step, but if we don't abolish the filibuster, if we don't create statehood, if we don't redistrict in a fair way, if we don't institute a system of public financing, if we don't reintroduce the Voting Rights Act, these are then then you know in four years it, if Joe Biden is voted out, then like we're back to where we started and what have we accomplished? So so that's what I'm saying about like it, yes, you're absolutely right. Like the last time there was a majority, we should have done this, but people were not thinking structurally yet. And now I think I think that's starting to change. And there is, and we have to also recognize the history of activism in DC to get yeah. the autonomy that we do have now from in the 70s. When, when well, what I'm seeing is a reframing of DC statehood as a racial justice issue, which is mm. a great way to reframe it and is accurate, right? It's a majority, I believe it's still a majority black city, although that is shifting, but that this is uh, not granting statehood to the citizens of DC is also a racist legacy mm -hmm. of, of who you're disenfranchising again it's purposeful so yeah i think you're exactly right Lindsay. like people are the organizing work has been going on consistently for many years people are, are refocused on racial justice in an, in a meaningful and exciting way and now we're looking at democratic systems and disenfranchisement in the aggregate and we're starting maybe to say oh maybe dc should be a state yes. interesting so this has been really, really inspiring and helpful, Francoise. Thank you. I just wanted to, before we let you go, ask, you know, specifically in registering millennial and Gen X Latinx voters, what you've learned. Yes. And um, if I can add to that, you mentioned disinformation mm -hmm. as being a big issue. And I'd, if you could include that, I would love to learn more about that. Yeah. Okay. Is that two separate questions? It might be. So, I mean, they're definitely connected, but okay. So what have I learned? So... Let's say, so one of the things that I get all the time is I tell people where I work, I work at Voto Latino, and they say like, oh, why, why aren't Latinos voting? They're important, important electorate. I'm reading all the over the place, like they're going to decide the election. Why is, why aren't they voting? And that is a very frustrating question. <laughs> and so, and I will illustrate it, I think with a, a metaphor, but uh, so Lisa, let's say that you we're having a birthday party and you invited all of your friends except Lindsay and Lindsay was came to me and was like oh I, I hear Lisa's having a, a birthday party and I'm like oh yeah oh I'm sure she didn't mean to not invite you like just come just come to the birthday party you're gonna be like I don't I don't know <laughs> right like even if you go you're gonna be like do I belong here you're probably not gonna go at all because like that's weird if you just show up and you weren't invited. And that has historically been the political, both political parties treatment of, of the Latino voter essentially is like, we're throwing this party, we're throwing this election and we're, we aren't going to explicitly invite you to participate. And we're just going to hope that you do anyway. And then surprise, surprise, they don't show up. So like any rational voter, Latinxes want to be invited into the political process and they have been historically ignored by both parties. And until I think parties get serious about reaching out to them and inviting them in, I don't blame them for not wanting to show up, right? Like that's a that's actually a super reasonable, logical reaction to that. 
And it's part of the work that Voto Latino does is to invite folks into the process to speak to them with their frame of reference, with their cultural competency, and and invite them into a political process that can be very confusing, daunting, uninviting, and demystify some of that and, and help them navigate it. That's great. So, Lindsay, you're processing. Yeah, I'm just still pissed off that Lisa didn't invite me to the birthday party. <laughs> right? <laughs> but like, that's, I yeah. mean, that's, that's so correct, yeah. right? There's all of this like hand wringing about like, will Latinos show up? And then I'm going to get the statistics wrong, but like, just take my point and not my exact numbers, please. But uh, in the 2016 election, something like 60% of Latino voters were not contacted at all by either, by any campaign. So what happens is this, this vicious cycle where campaigns only contact likely voters Latinos are not considered likely voters, so they're not invited in. They're not contacted. They don't vote because they haven't been contacted, and then they get lumped back into the bucket of unlikely voters, right? And this cycle goes on and on forever. So Voto Latinos, in part, um, breaking that cycle. But I think you are starting to see, hopefully, the Biden campaign and some others are, I think Bernie Sanders, actually, his campaign was a huge mm-hmm. wake up call that Latino voters are not unengaged. They just haven't been invited in. And yeah. when you do that work and you take them seriously and you talk to them and you you also acknowledge that Latino Latinx people are not a monolith, but that you know young Puerto Ricans in Florida are different from older third generation Mexicans in Arizona, Mexican Americans, right? That it's a very diverse and vast community of people. And speaking to those communities one-on-one, inviting them in, making them feel listened to. Maybe even actually representing their interests. Right. Taking them and their concerns seriously. <laughs> some of this will happen, right? Some of it has been spurred by increasing diversity in the party, but that's not really happening fast enough to create lasting structural change. So, so yeah, like I think what I have learned about working at Voto Latino is Latinx voters are, are super rational voters. And if you treated them the way that you treated Black voting blocks or white voting blocks, that they would show up in equal numbers and ignoring them has had the very predictable consequence that, you know, they don't want to go to a party they're not invited to. And I don't blame them. Well, and we're actually going to talk to a Latinx voter next episode. Yeah. So she can tell us what she thinks about whether she's been invited in. Good. That whole, your, your metaphor and, and what you were talking about kind of brings me to two points that I was processing. One is like <laughs> th- that right there, the way that the party system works, like how you've, you've explained it just shows to me, like, this is one of the reasons why we don't have a democracy. <laughs> we never really have. And that that's really my opinion. Like that, something about that structurally needs to change. And I think it's wonderful, the work that you're doing to bring Latin- Latinx voters into the process. But like, if that's the way the system is set up, then that's, uh, yeah, a problem. Yeah, yeah. This job is a little different than the other ones I've had in that it's it's much more. It's like working within the system we currently have. Mm-hmm. The other jobs I've had have been about changing the system itself, mm. and, and like you need both, right? Yeah, you can't just wait for this day when there's public mm-hmm. financing and anyone can run for office with $25 donations because we're, we're just not there yet. And if you aren't, if you're just biding your time until we're there, then you're going to get walloped at the polls. But yeah, this is very, like the, the register of 500,000 people is a, 
is like a short-term strategy, right? Yeah. Like, it needs to happen in the short term, but in the long term, we should have automatic voter registration and we mm -hmm. should have accountable parties and diverse parties that care about all voters, including Latinx communities. Yeah. And you, you do really need both. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that it made me think of is, as I was quite frustrated with the DNC convention. And one of the reasons I was frustrated was the, the Latinx representation was pretty low, wasn't it? On the main stage, like Julian Castro was, wasn't like, there. One week postpartum. I don't know what happened. So you weren't really paying attention. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Julian Castro. Yes. And I didn't learn about, I didn't really get to know him and his candidacy till like, like right before he dropped out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I've been following him and I think he's amazing. And he wasn't even there. And I was so mad. Yeah. So that was my other reaction to what you were talking about is it, how, yeah. yeah, as well as, and the, the lack of Muslim American representation mm -hmm. too, was just abysmal, especially given the, the Muslim ban that Trump has put in place. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing, I don't know again, cause I was just in a haze, but there probably was not much AAPI representation either. I think dem Democrats have. Um, What's AAPI? Uh, sorry. Asian American Pacific Islander. And I think Democrats have historically seen diversity as, you know, a black and white issue, that they have a black voting block that they can count on and a white voting block that is up for grabs. And that's not, it's not ideal. <laughs> that's not right. That's the diversity yeah. of the party is something that, again, like that's a structural problem that needs to change short and long term. Wow. Well, this was so, so interesting, Francoise. Thank you so much for teaching us. Sure. Just Actually, can I ask one thing? last question? So last night I was reading this book and I read this passage from this book that's totally re related to what we're talking about today. It's the book is Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot by Mickey Kendall. And the chapter about race, poverty, and politics, she talks about, she ends up talking about voting. And she says, long before the 2016 election, mainstream feminism was ignoring the ways the right to vote was under attack for marginalized people of the United States. And goes on to the history of voter suppression. And again, from like a feminist perspective, and as we know, what was it 100 years ago that officially, constitutionally, women had the right to vote, but there was still voter suppression. So black women didn't actually get that until the voting There's rights. There's still act. voter suppression. There's still, yes, thank you. Right? Like we're, we're still in the yeah. thick of it, no question. So I wanted, and I, what I liked about this is how she tied in like feminism with this issue of voting rights. And so I just wanted to ask you for your reflections on like all of this that you've been talking about and this work that we've been talking about and in your work, how is it a feminist issue to you? Yeah. How is it a fem feminist issue? Yeah. So in a few ways, one is that the system is set up to keep power in the hands of those who have power. Right. And so that historically has meant white men um, and the system is set up to exclude those voices and those votes of people who may disrupt that power structure. Also, yes, so feminism has historically, exactly as you said, it's been concerned primarily with white women and white women have like an, a pretty okay time voting. So that has allowed this ongoing campaign of voter suppression to keep going on. I want to say under the radar, but of course, if you're the person whose vote is being suppressed, it's like, it is the radar, it's flashing red, you know very well that your vote is being suppressed. But it hasn't, it's been 
it's why we don't have an updated Voting Rights Act, right, is that it's like able to be put on the back burner as though this were something that weren't important. And then in the meantime, voting suppression continues. So so I guess I'm answering like <laughs> that white feminism is failing democracy, which also is true. But it's a feminist issue because, again, like the way that I define feminism at the very beginning of this is that I want everyone to be able to lead full and unencumbered lives. And if you are shut out of the structures that are creating policy and creating the systems by which you live your life, then you can't, you can't live a full and unencumbered life. So fixing these, you know, allowing people to have voting rights, allowing regular people to fund elections, allowing regular people to run for office, giving the franchise to disenfranchised people in DC and Puerto Rico, like these are all things that are designed to correct historical uh, <laughs> uh, I can't think anymore. Injustices? Um, yes, thank you. Injustices. <laughs> yeah, so these are all systems that have been put in place to to keep those people in power, and, and it's up to us to tear them down and create yeah. a more just and inclusive way of doing things. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I even ask that question is why it's a feminist issue, right? Because it's right. like, because it has been in a lot of mainstream feminist movements, voting rights has not been seen, but that's because right. mainstream feminist movements have been predominantly led by white women and it's not an issue for yeah. white women. And they're but able it's an to issue vote. for a lot of other women. Yeah. <laughs> and the way that you have seen it manifest more among white women is with groups like Emily's List, where it's about running for office. Mm. That like, okay, well, we've got the vote, but like we're not represented in Congress. And we need to be, we certainly need that too. Yeah. But that, that has been where a lot of the feminist energy has been placed. Mainstream feminist energy, I should say, has been placed is in, you know, smashing that glass ceiling. And in the meantime, you have Black women organizing in Georgia where like our people are being shut out. Like our polling places are being shut down. Our voter ID laws are such that we can't vote when we show up, right? And like, that's just, it's a more fundamental problem in a lot of ways, although they are certainly connected. So I would love your guys' feedback on this. For me, I feel like I can't trust in our democracy if I don't know that other women are getting the vote, that all the other women are getting the vote. Mm -hmm. So I think, yes, white feminism has not been about democracy because it's been white but i also think that i guess just like you're saying that that's not true feminism then it's not true feminism but also that like white women have been hurt by other women not Mm. having the vote if if there's some white feminists out there that intentionally excluded other like women of color like that was to their detriment because I feel like not having those voices has been, has just been a huge loss for us mm-hmm. and we're worse off for it. And so I guess for me, one of the reasons why it's a feminist issue is because I, as a white woman, am being hurt myself. Like my own freedom is always going to be less if I don't have, if I don't know and trust that all women are getting, I don't know how to explain that better, but there's, there's not just like the politics of like white women were too busy being wrapped up in their own white selves. There's also this other piece of like, there's a mutual interest in this. Yeah. Who was it that said like, no one's free until black women are free. Right. I mean, that's, is that what you're saying? Yeah. But I guess I don't hear a whole bunch of white women saying that. 
or I don't, yeah. I don't hear a bunch of white That's women. That's part of the problem. <laughs> okay. So, so I, I can tie this into money and politics though, really quickly, Lisa, if you want do to get it. Into it, do so, it. So, so I used to, the, I used to work on money and politics reform and that's definitely an intractable issue where most people are like, can't, you know, oh, Citizens United can't do anything about that. Like, like people would say that to my face all the time. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm working really hard and there are solutions to this and, and they're very doable. But that is for sure a feminist issue because money and pol- like money and politics is a is an enormous barrier to entry to running for office and to having a reflective body politics. So if you want to run for office, Lindsay, and you you want to run, I don't know, what do you want to run for? For well, you're in DC, there's no governor. You want to run for mayor. You sit down with your campaign manager and you're like, I have all of these great ideas about defunding the police and affordable housing. I want to, you know, create equitable school districts. Like I'm, I'm ready. I'm here to do this. And your campaign manager says, that's fine. But first, can you raise $5 million? Hmm. Most women and certainly disproportionately most women of color do not have wealth networks that would allow them to go, sure, great. First, I'll raise $5 million and then I'll do this thing. And that barrier to entry is a really big reason why we see rich white men in all places in office. And so when you start to democratize campaign finance, when you start to create structures of public financing where it's about quantity of small donors rather than quality of large donors, then you then you actually start to have people who can run who are close to the community, who don't have their own wealth or access to wealth. And you start to get really interesting, exciting candidates that are um, representative of their communities. So there are places where this happens. Maine has small donor public financing, where if you get $65 donations, you qualify for a grant to run your campaign. You're done fundraising at that point. You've, you've raised your $65 donations by going door to door, and then you just get a check and you can run for office. Seattle has a cool system where every voter gets $100 of democracy vouchers that they can give to the candidates of their choice. And the first time that they ran an election with that, we saw the first Latina mayor elect, or the first Latina um, city councilor elected to the city council, who was also a union organizer and kept her union organizing job like while she was running for office. And she was like, I couldn't afford to do this, you know, unless there were democracy vouchers. DC has public financing this time, actually, this election, which is part of why we saw such an exciting, robust Ward 2 election to unseat Jack Evans and his long-term political corruption. So like, this is something that we can solve. And it would be a tremendous way to diversify who gets to run for office and who gets to be a leader because that big money price tag is such a a barrier to entry for so many people. Yeah. And I'll just say that, that which you've taught me over the years, Francoise, I think has given me the most hope, but it's been like, okay, maybe we actually could one day have like a truly representative democracy. Yeah. You pair small donor public financing with automatic voter registration and a new voting rights act. And you're like actually getting somewhere. And those are doable. Those are so doable. That's the thing. Like those, these are not um, esoteric, like unicorn policies. These are things we could pass day one with the political will. So if you're interested in money and politics and you really want to keep your eyes on that, where should you go? I think Common Cause is doing a lot of that work. Um, so is Public Citizen. So is Move On. 
Um, those are three great organizations that have their eye on the ball for money and politics. Well, thank you so much. Right. Yeah, we close with a question about we're just always doing a lot. And I'm curious how you are planning to take care of yourself. I am just trying to get out of the house and take a walk once a day. That's a good goal. Yeah, that's the goal right now. Awesome. Lindsay, how are you going to take care of my friend Lindsay this week? Well, I'm my expectations are even lower than that. I'm just, I'm going to get out of bed every day. <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. That's my goal. And when I do, I'm going to be very proud of myself. I'm going to say, good job, Lindsay. You got out of bed today. Lisa, how are you going to take care of my friend Lisa this week? I finished my last work project last night at about 9.30 p.m. And so I'm about to have a little more free time than usual, I hope, you know, besides the other full-time job I have, which is raising my kids. Yeah, I'm going to have more free time than usual. And it's very tempting to put expectations on that time and fall right into a mindset of productivity that I decided to leave on purpose. And so I'm just going to take care of myself by every time I come up against an expectation, I'm going to gently set it aside and say, it can wait. If it matters, it will still be there. That's great. And congratulations on thanks stepping yeah. back from your job. Yeah, thank That's you. Wonderful. Is there any place you want to send people, Francoise, to find out more about you and your work? Any sort of accounts to follow? or Yeah, you like can that? check out Voto Latino at votolatino.org, at Voto Latino on all the socials. Our social team is incredible. They're so good. Follow our Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Register. You can use our website to check your registration status, register to vote, find your polling place, make your voting plan. Volunteer. We do texting parties, I think once a week now, leading up to the election. You can text out the vote. Yeah, to see what we're up to. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was a really fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you both. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about this topic. Our website is mommingwellfeminist.com and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at mommingwellfeminist. Let's have each other's backs this week and take care of yourself. Da, 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 da.